Hi, I'm Nicole Ferraro, and this is The Divide, a podcast from Light Reading exploring the ongoing digital divide, why and where it still exists, and what needs to be done to get people everywhere connected to reliable high-speed internet. Today, I'm joined by Eni Augustine, who is the founder of Project Nandi, a mutual aid project she started following the onset of the COVID-19 pandemic to help close the digital divide in Minnesota's Twin Cities, and specifically to prevent Black, Indigenous, Latinx, and Asian students from being left behind by remote learning. Eni and I discuss how her community's digital divide was worsened by the coinciding crises of the pandemic and the police murder of George Floyd in 2020, why solutions like Project Nandi to address broadband inequality are important, her plans to start a community fiber project, and her message to legislators working on broadband bills in Washington, D.C. Eni, thank you so much for being here. Welcome to the podcast. I'm really excited to get to speak with you today. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. So before we, we dive in, tell me a little bit about your, your background, your professional background. Well, I am a network engineer, um, serial entrepreneur, um, Black Cooperative Economics um, adherent, <laughs> uh, and community worker. Awesome. Great. So you and I got connected um, because of your community aid project, Project Nandi, uh, which seeks to tackle the digital divide in the Twin Cities. So tell me about why, when, and how this project got started. Well, Project Nandi is actually the outreach arm of my um, B Corporation, Technologist Computers. Uh, I have been you know, refurbishing computers, gosh, since I was a teenager, and I just never stopped doing that throughout my life. And then I just decided to um, continue that. Uh, I worked primarily with like immigrants and communities of color that couldn't afford brand new laptops. So I was just always tinkering around fixing laptops and just trying to keep people connected. Uh, And, um, you know, then COVID hit. And I saw how badly that impacted my daughter. And I thought about the fact that most of the kids in my community didn't have, you know, the same privileges and access to laptops and high-speed internet. And I applied for a grant from the Coalition of Asian American Leaders. Uh, They gave me um, a small grant and I was able to, well, I was in the process of trying to use that to get laptops since I had already given out all the laptops I had refurbished. And then George Floyd was murdered by Minneapolis police. And that's when I realized that, um, you know, this lack of access is actually becoming a life-threatening situation uh, because police were being called. They weren't showing up. Uh, Families had no way to communicate with community or their families, even to let them know they needed help or were okay. All of the grocery stores had been burnt down or were closed. All of the electronic stores, even as far as Apple Valley, which is like the suburbs, suburbs of the Twin Cities were closed because they were afraid of looting. And you really couldn't even buy uh, a laptop or a cell phone if you had money. Uh, In fact, they wouldn't even deliver mail to my North Minneapolis office. So you have this moment of absolute crisis from a pandemic combined with a moment of crisis due to police violence. And you see how that impacts a community's ability to get online in a time when they need to be online more than ever. 
Well, yes, because since we weren't getting police responses to 911 calls, community members kind of banded together to keep each other safe. And I mean, if you don't even have a internet connection or a cell phone, you can't even tap into those networks. And so it really became a matter of life and death. And so I used the money to get some laptops and some refurbished cell phones. And basically when it was safe, went to North and South Minneapolis delivering technology care packages. And I started asking my friends and my family to help donate because I didn't really have, you know, the resources necessary. And it kind of evolved into the GoFundMe and, you know, money was streaming in from all over the world to try and handle this crisis. And so Project Nandi was born. And Project Nandi is actually named after Queen Nandi of the Zulus in South Africa. She's one of the historical single mothers uh, who raised the greatest king of the Zulu, Shaka Zulu. That's a great name for the project um, and <laughs> <laughs> a great namesake. Um, so just to, to back up a little bit, um, you basically, you saw this need, you saw this community in crisis, and it fit in with what you already do, which is refurbish laptops and, and you know, you're a community aid person. But how do you go from from step A to step B? And at what point did you did you turn to GoFundMe to, to start fundraising? How do you go from this is a need to I'm going to start going door to door to to get people devices? Um, was there a, a sign up list for people? Did you just go out and, and find out who needed technology? Well, yeah, I mean, I don't even know how, how it how it started. Um, I just thought that I, the, the scope of the need was so far beyond what I'd expected. Even me as a black woman, um, I somewhat naively felt like, okay, I'm going to drop off this laptop. Or I'm going to drop off this cell phone and everything's going to be fine. It clearly was not fine. Uh, I would arrive at homes, you know, the utilities are about to be cut off in the middle of a pandemic. When your neighborhood's on fire, your utilities, your electricity, your water, is being you know threatened and the conditions that i saw that people were just trying to manage and it just really lit my head on fire because it was just it was it wasn't workable and so i realized that i was just going to be in need of more resources people needed food people needed um you know bills to be paid people needed uh you know just assurance that they weren't alone and it was just beyond the scope of anything i had access to and so we started the gofundme Got it. Got it. So how much money have you raised with the GoFundMe and you, you eventually pivoted to another fundraising platform? Is that right? Yeah, because I mean, again, I had been refurbishing computers just kind of as an individual. Right. And based on the scope of, you know, the needs of my community, I decided that I needed to become an actual B corporation. And the goal was to be able to sell laptops and use that money to reinvest into Project Nandi. But again, the scope of the need was so high that the purchases that the few people were making just couldn't cover the scope of the need. And so that's why I started um, fundraising. And it was, I mean, it was fairly successful. I mean, I'm super grateful for all of the supporters that uh, did support. And we even had people that were paying every you know, couple weeks from their paycheck. They had money allocated for Project Nandi. Uh, we raised about $20,000. However, our goal was $300,000. Uh, 
And, you know, it strikes me as extremely meaningful that during the same time period, um, the, let's, uh, I forgot what his name was, but the guy that shot a bunch of people in Kenosha raised $2 million. Kyle Rittenhouse, I believe. Yeah. Yeah. Kyle Rittenhouse yeah. raised $2 million. Uh, chiefs of police, firemen, um, you know, were donating to his campaign to get him free. And, you know, my campaign till today has not been fully funded. We, I mean, we shut down the um, GoFundMe because it was basically under my own personal name and we were able to find a fiscal sponsor so that, you know, we could generate donations tax-free. It wouldn't be under my social. It wouldn't be, you know, yeah. it wouldn't be, it would be attached to the company rather than me. And so we switched it over to give Minnesota to have that capacity. Okay, great. So how much have you, you raised in total so far, if you're able to say? Um, around 200,000. Okay. That's fantastic. That's really good. But it's, it wasn't through a, um, a crowdfunding campaign that was through grant writing. Right. (laughs) (laughs) Got it. No, I trust me. (laughs) Yeah. I get what you're saying. Absolutely. And crowdfunding is not the ideal way anyway, to try to get, um, what your community needs in terms of broadband access and, um, you know, device device access and i think that's the that's exactly how i came across this project because i was curious to see who is turning to gofundme in this country to 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 fund their community broadband projects we do it for healthcare, so surely people are turning to gofundme for broadband as well and that's how I, i found your project um which is just comes with such a beautiful inspiring and quite frankly, heartbreaking story because it shouldn't come down to this. And the intersection of, um, you know, racism and uh, police violence and uh, racism in our healthcare system just completely collided for for your community. Um, And you rose to the occasion to to kind of save the day in, in many respects. So I'd you know, I know I know that's a a broad (laughs) description, but it you know, you are a community hero in, in this way. So I would love to hear a little bit more about the people that you've, you've been able to help and what that looks like. You know, once you bring people technology, like you were saying, you tap into a whole host of other problems. One of those problems, I'm sure, is um, digital literacy for some families, you know. So how what do you do? Absolutely. Yeah, what, do, do you work with your community on that as well in, in Absolutely. Absolutely. Because I think that most people don't really comprehend that technology is one of the systems of oppression, just like healthcare, just like education, um, just like even food access. Technology is its own separate system of oppression. And, you know, we've had situations where, you know, I guess in Florida a couple weeks ago, a Latina child was beaten by a principal for accidentally breaking a computer. Uh, you know, here in the Twin Cities, we've had U of M students who attempted to rent a laptop as is their right as a student, and they were threatened while trying to access that. You know, I, as a network engineer, I've been physically threatened. Uh, in fact, I was nearly shot at the Mall of America during quarantine. I had been sent out there to um, do a, a network survey for a store that was trying to open up. And the police came with guns drawn and drug dogs, threatening me, asking me why I was there, 
as though I was some kind of terrorist. And that's when I realized that, you know, my life meant literally meant less than a donut shop, which is what was opening at the Mall of America. Uh, and so, you know, for some reason, people feel that because machines are not alive, that there is not actual violence attached with, you know, just trying to access those systems. Uh, and so I provide tech support uh, for free uh, for all of my children and my families that I work with. They don't have to go to a retail store and be talked down to or, you know, abused when you're trying to get your things uh, fixed or blamed. And so that goes with it as well. And so kind of the process is that they fill out a form online or they call me and I fill the form out for them. And I get information about the family, you know, what their needs are, what the kids like, what their favorite colors are. And then I uh, put laptop skins that are individual for the child with the things they like, their favorite colors. I come out with a, I, I come out with a box full of the supplies and I actually help them uh, get things set up so that they're not too stressed out. Uh, help them connect to internet, make sure everything is working before I leave. And I also bring food. Uh, and school supplies. Um, so where I'm trying to use technology as a tool for healing and to express community love rather than a tool to talk down to people or abuse people or surveil people like it typically has been. That's so fantastic. And it seems like it's something that's so needed. Are there other people who work with you on your team? Do you have a team of people who go out and do this or is it just you? Well, I mean, I have a couple interns and a marketing manager finally, but no, I mean, I am the buck stops with me. I've shied away from partnerships because, I mean, so many of the ways that people of color are harmed are considered normal. And, you know, I've tried to partner with other organizations. I tried to partner with a church to deliver food to my families and they were distributing Trump flyers in the food. Unbelievable. Keeping in mind that many, many of my families are immigrants. Mm -hmm. You know, we don't ask about status or anything like that. And then there's this church delivering food to them saying that the president, you know, knows where they are. The president has sent them food. <laughs> oh my God. <laughs> you you know, and oh this God. was a church. Yeah. And so I realized that I guess a lot of organizations did not have the capacity to work with vulnerable people without trying to take advantage. Yeah. And so for that reason, like I deliver the service, I, you know, they call me. I mean, it's just unbelievable. Um, you know, the cracks in the society that need to be filled by regular people um, because uh, just of the various ways that we choose to marginalize people through our, you know, institutions, that kind of, brings me around to um, what gets funded. You know, I know that Minnesota has a state broadband office that's been distributing millions of dollars in, in funds, uh, grants for the past, um, I think, six years. Certainly, there's going to be more federal funding coming down the pike pretty soon. Um, and it's something like what you do seems like a service that would need to be funded um, by a, a government agency. Um, in order for it to be sustainable. And because there's a real need to have community leaders 
um, who know where the, the, the needs are and know how to service them and are, are trusted, you know, when you can't even trust uh, the church to hand out a flyer, you need to be able to turn <laughs> right. to a trusted leader. So do you, right. do you feel like you fit in anywhere when it comes to what gets funded from the state, um, the federal government? Um, is there a place for you even to apply for the, that sort of funding or for you to even make yourself known? Um, have you seen how that funding impacts your community? I just love your, your input on, yeah. on that. Yeah. <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, me and my friends um, who are Black women who also run the organization were talking, uh, were talking about this the other day, and we kind of came to the conclusion that all of the work that we as Black women do is a line item on somebody's billion-dollar budget. Mm-hmm. You know, so they, they get the funds, we get the work, yes. <laughs> and that's kind of how it's worked. I mean, now that I have a grant writer, I'm trying to access some of those funds. I haven't been as successful as I would like to be. um, Because I mean, $300,000 for a technology nonprofit is literally a a drop in the bucket. Uh But you know, we it's been a year and we haven't been able to get there. Right. Um, So you know, it's it's pretty disheartening. I'm going to continue the work as long as I can. Uh, with, you know, the support that I have, but, you know, we, we do need to be funded. Yeah, absolutely. What would your message be to um, legislators as they are uh, evaluating how to fund broadband in this country? There's a lot that's happening at the federal level with regard to discussions around broadband policies, a lot of debates, a lot of lobbyists getting their um, voices heard on this. So what would you want to say? Well, I mean, first they need to do genuine community outreach. I mean, sending an email or doing a Zoom is not going to cut it. I need to see them at the grocery store, the nail shop, the church, all the places that people are in community. Um, secondly, you know, those they need to write guidelines on diversity and using minority-owned businesses as they build these networks. I mean, an organization like Technologist Computer uh, has the capacity to install fiber. Like, I know how to install fiber. Um, You know, one of my projects that I'm working on called Way of the Root Farm is basically my way of, you know, approaching food justice and trying to inject free Wi-Fi for the community (laughs) into it. That's amazing. Um, So projects like that that are unique outside of the box and, you know, black run, uh, Asian run, Latinx run are the projects that you know they need to be a part of this plan. And those those that funding and those grants and those um, what is it? Uh, those contracts need to be going to minority owned technology companies and not just white white owned companies that promise promise pretty promise to hire black and brown people. Yeah, absolutely. So just to to round this out then, can you tell me about your community fiber project? Um, where are you in the planning stages of this? Um, and what are the, you know, the connectivity needs of, of your community? We've talked a lot about um, getting them access to devices, but um, presumably there there's also a, a digital divide in terms of access as well, right? Well, yeah, I mean, surprisingly, uh, most of Minneapolis and most of St. Paul does not have fiber internet. Yet, um, you know, counties in the outstate, like Renville County, uh, has fiber internet. Um, you know, it's already done. You can just basically plug into it. Uh, they need to address that here in the Twin Cities. 
um, way of the root farm, we will um, be planting uh, and also building uh, a wireless network to try and at least provide free community Wi-Fi for the block that we're on. Um, but again, I mean, they're going to have to dig up streets. We're going to have to, yeah. I mean, it's, and, and the streets in Minneapolis and St. Paul are terrible. I mean, it, they need to be busted up and replaced. And so as they're doing these highway projects, as they're, you know, replacing these streets, they need to be installing fiber and it needs to be community owned. Uh, you know, the, the internet companies and the cable companies are here to make money and they've done so. They've done very, very well during this pandemic. Mm -hmm. And so they need, they need to classify internet as a utility so that we can guarantee access. Yeah, and th there's a lot of discussion about that at the federal level. Um, so do you have funding at the moment for this, uh, for the fiber project? Uh, no, okay. we are working with the city of Minneapolis. They've given us a small grant of 6,000 okay. for this project. But again, yeah. you know, that's a drop in the bucket. That's yeah. not even going to cover my staff overhead. Right. So, you know, when when we're given these assignments without budget, it appears like it's basically state-sanctioned state free work or state-sanctioned slavery in a way yeah. where we're given these assignments but not given the funding to fulfill the assignments on the assumption that we're just going to do it because, you know, our community needs it. Wow, that's such a good way of putting it, um, and stark <laughs> and uh, depressing, especially for something that is, you know, really a utility um, to to put it on the community to <laughs> to give them pennies to figure it out. Um, so, um, so do you have a a broader plan for this if you can get it funded? And are you are you still going to be crowdfunding for this? Is that part of the same um, pot as the Project Nandi funds? Well, yeah, I mean, considering that the funds that we need just to operate Project Nandi have not been fulfilled or met yet, yeah. we do have a, a crowdfunding campaign on givemn.com okay, great. Uh, where people can, can fund us. Uh, but we, you know, it's one of those things where I put together the budget for the community broadband project. And like, just to get started, we were at around $900,000. You know, and so when my three hundred thousand dollar ask hasn't been met, yeah, it didn't really make sense to say, okay, well, if you don't have three hundred thousand, give me a mill. You know, right. <laughs> <laughs> fair enough. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. So I mean, it's something that is on our plate. It's something that we're working on, but again, it's not funded, and so there's really not much we can do. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Um, well, hopefully we'll get some more eyes on your your fundraising link and, and, and we'll we'll be able to help you raise some more money um, more over. I hope that the government um, starts to funnel money to projects like yours and other community owned projects, because it's where we're going to fill in the, the gaps here. Um, I guess the last thing I want to ask you then is, um, you know, what does Project Nandi look like right now? Um, also, you and I were talking just before we started recording about yet another tragic police murder of Dante Wright in your community. Um, so and we're coming upon the year anniversary of George Floyd's murder. So just where are you with this project now? Where is your community right now? Um, and, you know, what do you what are your plans for the upcoming month, basically? 
Well, our, our community has just been so devastated and destabilized as a result of police violence and, you know, um, everything that's been happening. When Dante, when Dante Wright was murdered, there were, it was like a nuclear bomb hit. So there was the initial impact of his death. And then there was the impact of neighborhoods being turned into war zones overnight. Children had to be split apart from their families and shipped to friends and, and family in different areas of the city. So families were torn apart. Uh, the increase in domestic violence, I mean, there were, we almost lost two of our mothers as a result. And, you know, so those types of harms are not tabulated in the overall cost of, you know, racialized violence, but there's something that our families just deal with on a daily basis. And so I've been working with my families just to kind of understand that for better, well, definitely for worse, this is kind of our new normal. Because when they were doing the Chauvin trial overnight, the uh, school districts of Minneapolis, Brooklyn Park, and Brooklyn Center were switched back to virtual. And so whether it's, whether it's COVID or police violence or even regular thunder snow, <laughs> which is a thing, uh, you know, we're going to have to somehow make sure that our children receive the education that they deserve because we know that for black and brown children to not have education, that is a death sentence. That is a jail sentence. That is, you know, being doomed to drugs and alcohol. It is a life-threatening situation for a black or brown child to not have education. And so we, using technology, hopefully we'll be able to guarantee that our children have what they deserve, which is access to real education. You are making a huge difference in your community and in the lives of children and families. So thank you so much for all of your work and spending some time with me to help us uh, get a better understanding of it and of the intersection of, of all of these challenges. It's, it's really important what you're doing. So thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you again, Eni Augustine, for joining me today. You can find a link to the Project Nandi fundraiser in the show notes for this episode. Thank you, as always, to our producer, Tian Fu, for making this episode. Be sure to subscribe to the Light Reading Podcast for more episodes of The Divide, as well as interviews and insights from the Light Reading team. Thank you for listening. We'll see you next time.